this is It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast where we discuss the real meaning of the Easter season, which is David Lynch. Yes. And also having fun and being yourself. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a different episode in that we're not going to talk about an individual episode of Twin Peaks. We're going to talk about season one as a whole and what we liked and what we didn't like, what worked and what didn't. So to start us off, Brian, what was your favorite episode of the season? Well, Caroline, <laughs> I don't really have an interesting answer to this because my favorite episode was uh, episode three, mm -hmm. Zen or the skill to catch a killer. That's a great one. You know, not a really controversial choice um, because it's it's really just has so many great scenes. In particular, the ones people remember are the dream sequence, mm -hmm. which was so different and groundbreaking, especially for television. Yes. But also the long scene where Cooper is uh, using his Tibetan method. Yeah, that's that's such a great scene. And it was amazing to me during this rewatch that we've been doing to realize just how much good stuff was in just that episode. Uh, and I think that's the one where Cooper's character especially really solidifies. Yes, exactly. And we also meet Albert in mm -hmm. that episode. And, but there's still uh, a, a lot of the small beats that made Twin Peaks uh, feel so different and fresh and the things that people remember, like people eating, mm -hmm. talk about food, things that we, it's almost kind of sounds silly to say, oh, the characters ate or they said that a certain food tasted good, like that. <laughs> but we take these things for granted, but these were like little, little touches that made the show stand out. Yes, and isn't that one also, um, there's the long scene of um, Leland and Sarah dancing, or Leland trying to dance um, yes. to Pennsylvania 65,000, right. which is one of my favorite scenes, just because it's so odd. And I think that's really the first sign you get that something is going seriously wrong with Leland, not just yes. grief, but something is very, very bad in that house. Yeah, I think that that episode hits the sweet spot because it's it's very much a David Lynch episode. Mm -hmm. But unlike the two episodes before it, it feels the most like Twin Peaks. Yes. It's where it's where they they figured out what the show was going to be from now on. Mm -hmm. But unlike some of the episodes in the back half of the season, which we might get to, it it did it. Um, it's still weird. It's still so strange, mm -hmm. and and not really uh, something that that fits easily into you know the normal critical categories. Even now, trying to talk about the dream and what it means, and so many of the things they would invent reasons for what happened in the dream yeah. that pay off later. But right. even now it's still strange and we were still noticing little details and things that are said and it's like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and things that you don't always remember. Mm -hmm. uh, it really was this kind of like Jackson Pollock 
drip splash of mm -hmm. uh, words and images that just doesn't doesn't fit neatly into what a, t a TV show is supposed to be. Right. But it all works still, and it it all builds into something and continues to build into something. It isn't just like a one-off episode, but right. it introduces themes and characters and ideas that end up being really, really important and are really rich. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think David Lynch purposefully is trying to, to um, it's almost like a Trojan horse. Mm. He's, that so much of the narratives that he constructs seem almost like their bait to get us to go along with what he's really interested in, which mm. is something completely chaotic yes. and dreamlike. And some of his visual art is like that. It's very abstract mm -hmm. and um, it hasn't been as popular as his movies. No. But with the movies, he can, he can lure you in and, and get a big audience to, to watch that dream sequence mm -hmm. and say, yeah, that's great. Which if in isolation, you know, most people would say, this is, this is garbage. This is like that, uh, you know, that modern art that doesn't make any sense and it's right. pretentious. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure some people still say that about David Lynch, sure. but he's it's somehow able to, to make you go along to, pull you into spaces that normally you'd be uncomfortable with. Yeah, and I, it's interesting that you use the word lure when you talk about <laughs> his work. No, I'm serious, because we've talked about this a little bit. One of the reasons I like this episode so much too is that it really is a great exploration of his creative process mm -hmm. um, and a good example of what that creative process leads to. Um, I think you can see Cooper's detective methods as being very much analogous to um, Lynch's artistic methods. Yes. As a, a writer, a director, an artist. He talks a lot about how he sees making art as like catching fish. Like the ideas right. are just out in the world going past him and his mm -hmm. job is to grab them. Um, but he might not know everything that they mean. He right. might not know everything that he's saying. It's it's more about what feels right intuitively right. And, and what seems laden with meaning. It's not really about having a scientific architecture. Right. Well, even once he's on set, he yes. works like that. Mm -hmm. And he changes the script pretty much at will. Yeah. And is often trying to find what the scene should be in the moment. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes he will ask the actor to try something new. Mm -hmm. and the actor becomes a part of the collaborative process, mm -hmm. the creative process. Right. Yeah, it's it's a sort of meta element that, uh, you know, the Twin Perfect mm -hmm. picked up on this, but a lot of people have picked up on this, that it's, it's it's great because it's Lynch both doing he's he's yeah it's like a magic trick but he's also showing us the trick too yes or at least maybe it's not a I don't know if it's not that he's he's just showing us his method he's being very transparent about it really mm -hmm. yeah but maybe also inviting us to to look into that chaos and also to 
catch fish. To catch fish, mm-hmm. because what Dale is really finding out, it, it, there's no causal connection between the the bottles that the rock hits and mm-hmm. the murder mystery. Right. It's he's learning something about his own intuitions. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then that tells him something about real life. Yeah. And that's maybe what we have to do when we're confronted with challenging art mm-hmm. is to is once is if we say, well, I, I feel like it means this, but I know that other people would come to a different conclusion. But the fact that I think that yes. maybe tells me something about myself, but also about the world that I inhabit. Yes, because it's it's all one reality. Mm-hmm. I think he really believes that. And I think Cooper as a character believes that, that things like dreams and seeming games where you throw rocks at bottles and intuitions that come to you out of nowhere, all of that does reflect the real world. It's all just as real or not, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, So, but I do have a a runner up. Okay. A number two that I think is a little more interesting. Hmm. And what's that one? Episode six. Episode six, which is episode six? I think it's called Cooper's Dreams. Right. This is the Leslie Linka Gladder episode. Yeah, that's a great one. And well, it, yeah, it's yeah. kind of the it's kind of the the dark horse here. Mm. And it's even an episode that I don't think really stood out to me in previous watches. Hmm. But here, I just thought this is so perfect. And it it's it doesn't have those iconic scenes. Although the, I think the scene with the log lady. It's really great. Yeah, I agree. But just the way, just the direction, mm-hmm. the variety uh, of the direction, the, the subtlety and nuance of the way that scenes unfold and the way the characters move in the frame. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just really wonderful. Yeah. And a joy to watch. There's a lot of really good acting in that episode. I think particularly, I mean, from everybody, but from uh, Dana Ashbrook mm-hmm. um, as Bobby, he's quite good. Um, as he starts to reveal more about his actual relationship with Laura and how mm-hmm. complicated and fucked up it was and, and how yeah. he, as much as he has seemed like kind of a dick so far, he, he was not the bad guy in, in that relationship right. necessarily. Um, I think Sherilyn Fenn's performance is also very good. Mm-hmm. Um, she has to do a lot of different things in the episode and she's good at all of them. Um, I love the scene at the end where Leland is crying, dancing at the hotel and, um, Ben and Catherine kind of intervene to make him seem less embarrassing. (laughs) And it's in some ways it's a kindness, but it's also just how the town reacts to Leland in general, which is just to kind of treat him as a mess to be cleaned up. Right. Yes. I, this time around, I changed my opinion Mm -hmm. uh, because I had previously thought it was a kindness, but Leland because Leland is embarrassing, mm-hmm. but what Leland doesn't need is for someone to save him from his, from being embarrassed. Yeah. He needs someone, he needs help. Yes. <laughs> That's what he needs. Yes. He needs a lot of help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's an indication of basically what the town had done to Laura, which is just to 
ignore her problems, not, right. not look at her as somebody who needed help, but as somebody who either caused desire or caused trouble. Right. Yeah. So uh, what about you? Did you have a, a different answer to this question? I did. And I thought about picking Zen or the skill to catch a killer episode three. Um, uh, badly translated from the German. I think. Yeah, I know. Um, and that's probably my runner up, but I think my favorite is actually the next episode, which is sometimes referred to as rest in pain, but that's the one where um, we see Lara's funeral. Right. And um, I just think that episode has so much good stuff and it's so rich in terms of just deepening the mythos of Twin Peaks, the town, introducing mm -hmm. you to the idea that whatever evil is at work here is potentially very old. And right. there is just much more to this story than a girl who got killed. While at the same time, it's placing the girl who got killed at the very center of this story. It's yes. not letting you just put her in the ground and forget about her. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's, you know, it's, it's almost a cliche at this point. It is a cliche at this point, a uh, television show, where a teenage girl is murdered brutally and a detective shows up to solve the crime and it reveals yes. something about the town. Right. Um, there's another one on HBO right now, but um, the girl herself in those stories is so often just brushed aside. She's just treated as an object and Twin Peaks doesn't do that at all. And I really respect that. Mm -hmm. And this episode is an example of that they don't let Laura stay buried. Yeah, absolutely. And this this episode is so crucial mm -hmm. to this season because the conflicting views of what Twin Peaks is, Yes. the complexity there, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's, I don't think even now mm -hmm. when so many shows are, uh, have been influenced by Twin Peaks, yeah. You don't see this that much. I think you're more likely to see a show that's pretty solidly on one side or the other. Yes. Where this is, especially these kinds of shows now, mm -hmm. it's like pretty unambiguous that there's something dark under the surface. Right. But the idea that there, you would also have this character who's kind of the sensible hero saying, this is a, this is a wonderful place. Yeah. And I love being here mm -hmm. just because of, you know, the way the trees look or something. Right. And I think that goes back to what we were kind of saying before about how David Lynch sees the world. It, it's very facile to say that he is interested in exploring the darkness under the surface of nice American towns. You can say that that's what Blue Velvet is about, but I don't really think he sees it that way. It's much like he sees waking reality and dream reality. They're things that are side by side. One isn't on top of the other one. They're both real and right. they both matter. They're, yes. Like one isn't um, the real thing and the other isn't the surface covering up the real thing. They're both the real thing. Right. And and I think another, another part of that complexity is that he himself is able to hold these two I don't want to say ideas in his mm -hmm. head, but really he has like, like every human being, he has conflicting desires. Yes. Uh, 
conflicting preferences mm-hmm. and and he he loves the uh the the for lack of a better word the surface but he he yeah. he, he grew up uh, you know he loves the the culture that he grew up in mm-hmm. he loves small town america yeah he loves diners mm-hmm. and uh you know 50s styling for clothing he he is kind of a he does have a real nostalgia mm-hmm. although not it's not like the it's not like vapid nostalgia of yeah. like you know it's like we need to have uh a, a, a new i dream of genie movie now. no but but it's it's a real love for life as it had been lived mm-hmm. and as some people and is is still lived now it, it, you know in many places it's a real love for the small things that people you know that people like uh, that and that people do mm-hmm. well at the same time seeing that the uh, all of those things are implicated in some way and that they are all built uh, they're they're all part uh, of these other things, yes, and intertwine with this darkness and mm-hmm. this evil. You know, I, I think David Lynch had a a, a quote in an interview mm-hmm. where he said that um, you know people were made uncomfortable by. Mm-hmm. I think he was talking about Firewalk with me. He was, yes. People were uncomfortable watch with the subject matter mm-hmm. of like this incest and abuse happening within families. And he said, they're probably uncomfortable because they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, not literally doing it, but just like every, you know, that this is, it is something that happens everywhere. And if it's not that it's something else like there's, yeah, it's, you know, that there is that in a sense the this, you know, idyllic world is also a kind of projection. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there's not real joy and love there. Yeah. And that this process that is tearing people apart, it's also maybe creating these seeds of something yeah. beautiful that can then bring people together. Yeah, there are a lot of nature images in this episode, and I think they're really important. Um, you know, Truman talks about the the evil that is in Twin Peaks as being something that comes from the woods, but we also see, you know, a root system um, right. in Lara's grave as the coffin, you know, goes up and down. Um, Albert talks about Lara's body being planted. That's right. the word he uses for her burial. And I think that's what you said is exactly right. There's this idea that some things good or bad can have branches coming off of them that might be the opposite that might lead to other things they come right up to saying that Lara's death is kind of necessary (laughs) for the survival of the town like I, i think harry says maybe this evil is what makes the good parts of twin peaks so good right yes and that's really interesting and and it's, I think there's some truth to it, mm-hmm. but then also, or I guess it's hard, you know, I think that there's no, ultimately there's not like one answer to this. No. I think, you know, it, because 
there's a lot, you know, I think Truman is also has kind of a vested interest in upholding a certain narrative mm-hmm. of Twin Peaks that allows Twin Peaks to function, to make, continue functioning as it is. And That's to, his, and know, to justify his role in it. Exactly. Which is law and order. You know, he, he doesn't have a role. The Bookhouse Boys don't have a role unless there's something right. for them to fight or control. Yeah, it's like he's right about the connection, but he's wrong about locating the evil on the outside. Exactly. That's exactly it. And then also this question of to what extent was Laura's death, you know, to say it's necessary, it, it almost seems like then she it becomes like a, almost like a wicker man, mm-hmm. you know, or fertility cult yes. sort of idea, yeah. which is pretty twisted. But then I also wonder whether maybe there's actually a, supposed to be a, a, a dichotomy mm-hmm. between the natural and the industrial. Yeah. And that it may be in both there, there's cr- destruction that allows creation. Well, that's, but, that's the whole reason Twin Peaks even, right. even exists is because of the lumber industry, the industry that takes from the woods that apparently have so much power in them, so much so that a log from those woods can communicate ideas <laughs> to right. someone. Um, and they turn it into lumber. They turn right. it into a commodity, into something that makes houses and stores and right. tools and everything people need. Right. Yeah. And is that like just maybe another version of why nature does mm-hmm. when, you know, decaying vegetative matter becomes soil for other plants? Or is is it somehow a corruption or mm. uh, a violent uh, distortion of that? Well, yeah. I mean, my opinion as a Marxist is that it's it's not the industry itself. It's the capital. Like, it, it's the commoditization of the industry. It's it's the fact that it's not about turning one thing you have into something you need, which is right. fine. It's about turning what you have into something that you can sell right. or hoard or use as a method of control, which is basically what Catherine and Ben do with right. the lumber mill and Josie to an extent. Like they use that the fact of the mill as a way to control the entire town right but that's that's how the town was created to begin with right and that's why you know the entire town is built on the shaky ground Mm -hmm. it's because the town only exists as part of an ongoing process of plunder and domination exactly and it can only continue to exist as part of that process so Mm -hmm. when the mill is burned down because of all this double dealing and uh, exploitation. And, and that Ben Horn, the rich man in town, wants to get richer. Yeah. Even if that destroys the jobs of the people that work at the mill. Mm-hmm. And even if it involves murdering people and yeah. <laughs> doing all this shady stuff. Uh, that's just how Twin Peaks was founded. Exactly. It's, it's just changing form in a way. And... Um... Yeah, and it it does say a lot that that transition can happen basically because 
there's no profit in the mill anymore that's greater than what Ben wants to turn it into, you know? Right. Like a hundred years before Ben's goal would have been to take over the mill so that he could make all that lumber money. Right. But um, apparently there, that's not as useful to him. Right. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the process of change that, that, that only that, that relies on transforming human beings into objects. Yes. Which is also to say that it relies on seeing other human beings as essentially distinct mm -hmm. from oneself. Yeah. As opposed to the natural process, which is also both destructive and creative, mm -hmm. but where nothing is distinct and separate, yeah. especially if we're, I mean, we're speaking broadly, but especially if we're talking about that metaphor of, of plant life mm -hmm. and the roots and Laura being in the ground with the root system coming up yeah that plant life you know it's a lot more like distinction between the self and the other in a yeah. tree for example mm -hmm. is a lot more uh is a lot hazier mm -hmm. you know when a branch can fall yeah but the tree is still alive and there's I'm struggling with how to say this, but but there's more parity in terms of being broken down for the sake of the other things, like because everything does that. You know, the right. the plant eventually decays and that feeds the soil, which will feed other plants. Right. And animals eat those plants, and that means the plants die, but then those animals also enrich the soil. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's one way to look at it. I mean, I don't want to be too sentimental about nature. No, of course not. And, you know, maybe from a Buddhist perspective, it's all on a, a spectrum and that even plant life is mm -hmm. a kind of less dramatic version of, you know, the way like plant, uh, tall trees that cover up, uh, that block out the sun might yeah. actually like make it an inhospitable environment for shrubbery along the bottom. Sure. It might be one process of desire that is projecting itself into the world. Yes. But I, I mean, I think, no, I don't want to be sentimental about it either, but I think these themes are there. And that's why I think it's especially important that in this episode, Lars Coffin goes up and down in, yeah. in the grave. She's not just being put in the ground, which would be natural in right. some respects, but she keeps being lifted out of it and then put back and then lifted out and put back. And, and there's right. so much imagery in all of these episodes really about transgressing boundaries. Um, and that is what we ultimately find the original crime to have been. Right. Um, and that's also what Leland is doing in that scene when he's on top of her coffin, he's a living person going into a grave and then out right. of it and then into it and then out of it. He's, crossing boundaries he's not supposed to cross. It's unnatural. Right, that's some, somehow what the town is is doing just by existing. Mm -hmm. is, it, its existence is founded on this contradiction where what is within is denied and therefore has to appear as the other, yes. as a kind of supernatural force. Mm -hmm. um, because the town is a kind of collective dream yeah. built on this shifting sand of an economy that is is in its essence crisis and upheaval. Mm -hmm.
Uh, so do we want to move on to the next question? Sure. So from the sublime to the ridiculous, what was your least favorite episode? The finale. Yeah. And it's not bad. The finale is good. It's it's hard for me to answer this question personally because I think this is one of the most solid seasons of television that I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's a bad episode in the bunch. No. Um, but I think... Of these episodes, of these eight episodes, the finale is the weakest just because it feels less like Twin Peaks and more like standard episodic television. Right. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And there's no, it doesn't have, uh, it doesn't give much space to the characters of the story to breathe. Yeah. You know, even even something that, it, even if just have have a little more of the food stuff, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, in a way, I almost hate that. Like people remember Twin Peaks as the show where the snacky show, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and there are other shows that have kind of done the quirky thing too much. Yeah, but it was a it was something like that. It was sorely missed in the finale. Something where for a scene to just, you, you want a scene that goes on just a little too long mm -hmm. or, a, you know, the, the business is done right. that the scene needs to do. And then a character says something that's not related. It was too, it was too plot it. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's some good stuff in it though. I think Ray Wise is uh, especially good. He, he was always good. Mm -hmm. um, but I think his final scene in this episode is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I think the bits we get with Jacques Renault are interesting. I think that yeah. performance is good. I like the stuff with Laura's tape, um, and what's revealed on it and what it reveals about her and how she saw her relationships. I think that's interesting and that'll mm -hmm. be fruitful later, especially in Firewalk with me. But, um, yeah, it's just, there's just less there there, I think. Right. It's, there's so much time spent on plot lines that aren't really at the heart of mm -hmm. what me personally, what I, what I am interested in. Yeah. Which ultimately I think is Cooper, Audrey, and probably Ed. Yeah. And Norma to mm -hmm. an extent. Shelley sure. to an extent. Yeah. And Leland. Yes. And Laura. Mm-hmm. And so, and in a way, I think that I'll have a, have a couple of things that I, I'm trying to get out. Like, one thing I want to say is it is, like you said, it's more like like standard television. And it's mm -hmm. also more like a, a soap opera. Yes. Especially with with uh, just taking every storyline and making it a cliffhanger. Right. And I think that um, the, you know, that um, going back to episode four, I think that was an episode that really used the soap opera elements well because mm -hmm. the, the funeral scene is so much like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of over the top. We talked about how it yeah. can't be. 
having Bobby interrupted and, and right. choose everyone. A fight between Bobby and James and then Leland losing his mind right. and Sarah screaming. And but it has this thematic resonance. Yes. Whereas here it's just all uh, moving the plot forward. Mm -hmm. And also wasn't too impressed with the direction. I feel like I almost wish they brought Leslie Lincoln Gladder back in yeah. to give it to at least um, provide some more some visual interest. Yes, I agree. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is that I think this episode is exhibit A for the case that ultimately Lynch and Frost's idea that they would just never solve the mystery mm -hmm. and have it be a kind of MacGuffin that allows yeah. them to just go on and on and on mm -hmm. was never going to work. Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. And in fact, there have been shows that have actually done that since then, mm -hmm. like Lost, right? which is basically this sort of thing where there's a mystery, but you never solve it until the very end. You can go on season after season after season. Yeah. And what happens is you have to keep making stuff up. And yeah. There's a, you know, there's no free lunch uh, mm -hmm. in terms of fiction. Right where you can really keep juicing it and juicing it. Like mm -hmm. Lynch said it was the goose that laid the golden egg, that they're killing that by solving the mystery. Yeah. But I do think, and we'll, we're, I'm gonna come back to this in season two, mm -hmm. because even like the good episodes of season two, I think you start to see this, um, that really the heart of the show is at the mystery. Yeah. And there, I think that they were gonna have to solve it eventually, or mm -hmm. the show just at best becomes what the finale is. Yeah. Which is lots of stuff with Ben Horn and Catherine and, yeah. and Josie, mm -hmm. which is all works and is all yeah. like, interesting here, mm -hmm. but I'm already kind of losing interest, I think in the finale. And then they're already in setting up some of the storylines that are gonna be really bad yeah like super nadine super nadine lucy's paternity mm -hmm. issue yeah <laughs> um you know uh we're already seeing that donna mm -hmm. who was so important emotionally in the first early episode she's becoming more secondary becoming secondary and that her pairing with james is becoming really boring mm -hmm. that was probably like the least interesting part of the finale yeah uh they're them you know being like the scooby gang right it was not that interesting to me and they're they're kind of setting up their love triangle too already yes so it's all it's kind of all there in the finale all all, all those plot lines that are gonna be like this, the um, the weak spots mm -hmm. and even the good episodes. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's at best what Twin Peaks is when you don't solve the mystery. Yeah. There, there was a natural time limit. Yeah. On this. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's yeah. okay. I, I think if it had just been the first season and then probably the first half of the second, right up until, um, Leland's death and then fire walk with me. I think it would have been just, you know, perfect. 
Right, because really that stretch up to Leland's death is about, what is that, like eight, nine yeah. episodes? Mm -hmm. Maybe 10, I don't remember. But it's about the length of the first season. Yeah, about when, you know, when you also consider like the pilot is two hours and... Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's my answer. Mm -hmm. Do you have a different one? No, I think I think I have to go with the finale too. And I don't dislike the finale. Like I, I think it again, it has some good stuff. And I don't think any episode of this season is bad. Um, when we get to season two, we'll have some bad ones. But I yeah, it just didn't it doesn't have what I love about the show in it to quite the same extent. Yeah. And it's you know, I, to some extent, it's a function of, of re, you know, we know how it ends. Like, it's it's there to be a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the first time it aired, it was very exciting. Yes. So, but, you know, that, that we've talked about the rewatch value. Yes. And I think Twin Peaks has a tremendous rewatch value. It absolutely like, does. This is one of those episodes that doesn't, mm -hmm. where it, there's probably a pretty big disparity between how exciting it is to watch it when you know what happens versus watching it for the first time. I think, I think that's exactly it. And I think also that just some of the cliffhangers are <laughs> less elegantly set up than others. Like all the stuff with the mill, we, we've known for a while that shit was going to go down at the mill. So I don't mm -hmm. mind that cliffhanger. I don't mind um, Leland killing Jacques. Um, oh, that's a great, that's actually, yeah, that, the, that's the best a, part of the episode. That's, yeah, it's an incredible scene. It, it's an incredible showcase for Ray Wise. It, it really, it is still shocking, I think, to see that and to see his face as he does it. But stuff like um, Nadine's suicide attempt, I don't think that was as well set up as it could have been. Um, and I think that's like my main complaint with the Ed, Nadine, and Norma subplot going forward is that they sort of transparently want to keep Ed from leaving Nadine. And so yeah. they just keep introducing elements that prevent him from doing that. Right. And I feel like they should have just trusted the performances and trusted that Everett McGill could sell that he was just loyal to this woman because of feelings of guilt yeah, and wasn't responsibility. Really yeah, you didn't have to give her a suicide attempt to make him stick around. He was going to stick around anyway. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. Do we have any more questions? We certainly do. So favorite character. Who's the star of the season for you? Well, I have trouble with questions like this because... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> uh... I, I guess it just really depends on how we're defining that word. Yeah, maybe we can talk about that too. It's like who, I think, you know, you can define it as who are you most interested in seeing on screen? Mm. When they're in the scene, who, you know, what's the character that when they're on screen, you are giving it the most attention? Yeah. And... And I think there are a couple that stand out, obviously. Mm -hmm. Cooper. Yeah. And Audrey. Yeah, for sure. And, 
but then maybe a surprised uh, surprising choice would be Leland. Yeah. As a character that I'm always interested when he's on screen. Ray Wise and Grace Zabriskie are probably my favorite actors right. um, in all of Twin Peaks, just in pure performance terms. Mm-hmm. I love watching them. I love watching them together. I always like seeing what they do. I feel like I notice something new about what they're doing each time I watch mm-hmm. or rewatch an episode. Um, so for defining it that way, yeah, it's the two of them. I think my favorite character in all of Twin Peaks is Lara, but at this point, we don't, we haven't seen right. Lara as much. Um, she's my favorite mostly because of Fire Walk with me, but I think we have learned a lot about her or can infer a lot about her. And she's still extremely interesting. But yeah, I, I gotta go with Audrey, I think. Yeah, she's one of the more complex characters mm-hmm. because she she does seem to have like the most room to grow in the most, there are a lot of different possibilities for how yes. she might turn out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's the character that is the most in question mm-hmm. as uh, a character. Yeah. And what I find so interesting about her is of all of the characters who are somehow touched by Laura's death, She's actually touched the least, but she still insists on inserting herself into that main part of the story, which nobody else who isn't really affected by it does. Like, Shelly doesn't really give a shit. (laughs) I mean, she knew Laura. She um, is affected by it tangentially because she's in a relationship with Bobby and, you know, this kind of frees Bobby up for her, even though she's still married. But she isn't interested in solving the mystery. She's not interested in finding out about what Lara was doing or who Lara was. She doesn't really care. Um, Same with even, you know, characters like Norma or Ed, really. I mean, Ed is helping the Bookhouse boys, but, Mm -hmm. but Audrey, it's like, and, and I'm not saying this to denigrate the writing at all. I think it's really interesting. Audrey is the one character who seems to know she's on a TV show and mm-hmm. acts accordingly. It's like she realizes, okay, well, this is the main plot line. And <laughs> I want to be involved in the main plot line. Right. But it doesn't make her, like, seem cynical or, um, I don't know, selfish or narcissistic or anything like that. It's... Well, because yeah. because it makes her like us. She's yes, interested in exactly. the drama. Exactly. I th- I think that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, she's she's the audience. You know, she sees Dale Cooper and she's like, "Wow, he's great," <laughs> and that's what we think too. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, and and it's also uh, part of her youth. Yeah. And an experience. Yeah. She, once adventure she mm-hmm. sees the the mystery around laura's death and even she sees laura as like a person as this grand story yes that would maybe free her from her rather boring mm-hmm. life as you know somebody who goes to algebra class well and also as like the rich girl, someone who in a, a way she 
mm-hmm. probably gets most of what she wants, but right. that's, but only that, that just means she can like buy things in a small town mm-hmm. where her dad owns everything. Right. And, uh, you know, maybe she doesn't have a lot of options there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, and it's interesting because I feel like, uh, Donna and James are sort of placed in a similar position. Like they're coming of age. They are discovering more about the town that they live in and the people they knew there. But I I just think it's so much less engaging with the two of them because Mm -hmm. they really are such a drag. I mean, we'll we'll talk, we'll talk about that with the next question, but yeah, Audrey is just so curious about everything and kind of delighted by things. And that's why I think she's such a great character to look at next to Cooper, because I think they are very similar in some pretty important ways. Mm -hmm. Um, He's more experienced than she is and a little bit sadder unexpectedly, but um, I think that's what makes that relationship really engaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's, a great relationship where the actors have a lot of chemistry mm-hmm. and the characters have a lot in common, but they're also different and yeah. there's some tension because she is displacing her, um, her need for guidance into a kind of sexual fantasy or, or maybe even thinks that she has to make it sexual mm-hmm. in order to deserve. Yeah. Um, the guidance that someone like Cooper can bring her that her own father can't mm-hmm. because Cooper is, has uh, moral stability, yeah. which her father doesn't. Um, they're really great together. So looking forward to season two and to see these characters spend a lot more time together. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh God. Um, but kind of going back a little bit, I think that, Audrey's storyline and her cliffhanger in the finale was one of the ones that worked for me Um, just because her relationship with her father had been important throughout the first season. And a lot of it was unspoken though, like her resentments of her father and her maybe jealousy of Laura's relationship with him and how she was yes displacing that onto other things it's like this is this is the ickiest possible version of that all coming to a head right that's the cliffhanger that is actually thematically resonant with the rest of the show right especially because you know i think we even said this in the last episode that audrey has been trying to find out what happened to laura by becoming laura and now she's getting much closer than she knows exactly Right. Well, this is this is the her storyline is the the story of the show, mm-hmm. which which is the you know, it's like discovering the original sin, mm-hmm. which is that your parents are imperfect and your community is imperfect, yeah, and their imperfections become a part of who you are, yes. in ways that. Uh, you know, are kind of can be experienced as a violation of your your will, and that can be an actual violation mm-hmm. if your parent is actually abusive. Yeah, and the person that you rely on the most and trust the most mm-hmm. turns out to be someone that would harm you. Yeah. Um, but even if they don't, the ways that they make decisions that affect you, mm-hmm. or 
just their imperfections become part of your self, um, you know, and maybe that's also part of Audrey's story is the, the lore of becoming her father. Yes. And just manipulating and using people mm -hmm. for your own advantage. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's something that the show does that I think is really interesting too, especially with Audrey's relationships with the men in her life. It's not just Oedipal really, you know, she doesn't um, have this thwarted desire for her father or anything like that. Um, she wants him to be a father to her, but she also is him in a right. lot of ways. And so she's at war with him in herself. And it's a storyline that you see with fathers and sons all the time. Right. Um, yes. in film and television, but not always with fathers and daughters. And I think that's really what the story's about. Right, yeah. And that's that's another place where a boundary gets transgressed. Mm -hmm. um, but the transgression is like a revelation of who Ben Horn really is, even yeah. if he's not, he doesn't actually want to have sex with her. He finds out that it is part of the, range of possibilities for him. Like he could have done it. Yeah, and not intentionally, not, but right. because um, he does it to women, girls, mm, yes. like her. Mm -hmm. And girls who were her classmates. Yeah. And that she, that somehow, yeah, that, that uh, you know, what you do to one person, you do to everyone mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And you do to yourself, and that the sins that you that you're like think that you're committing outward, um, they're actually redounding upon you, and and, your, uh, and people that and, you love, and even people that you don't necessarily think they will. And I think that's really thematically important in the main storyline too. Is that what happens in private isn't private? Right. It it has roots, right? That can flower in unexpected ways. What Leland did to Laura leads to what Ben almost does to Audrey. Right, where they, yeah, both, I mean, Audrey, but also Ben in a way are kind yes. of wind up as unwilling. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of are, um, yeah, they're reenacting. Mm -hmm. They're caught in this psychic energy yeah. that is repeating itself. Yes. Yeah, and 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 that also this is the collapsing of the compartmentalization of mm -hmm. Ben Horn's life. Yeah, he thinks he can have. You know, I think he does love his his daughter at least. I think he does. Um, you know, and he thinks that that can be separate from what he does mm -hmm. to these teenage girls at One Eye Jacks. Yeah, and that can be separate from his you know business with like Catherine and the Mill. And, right. Um, but it just doesn't work. And, you know, it also makes me think about the question that we asked once, but I don't think is ever answered is, did Leland ever go to One-Eyed Jacks? Because he was Ben's lawyer. And we know Ben took clients there. Well, in, in Fire Walk With Me, we find out that, that Leland did visit sex workers, yes. but I think maybe he was a little more 
cautious to mm-hmm. do it like in the next town over yeah and to not do it in a i this i don't i don't know we don't we never you know they could have put in a scene in fire walk with me where leland was at one eye jacks well one eye jacks is also in the next town over it's across the border well that's true yeah but it's it yeah. is also is leland would know it is owned by and he would know ben. I, I think there's no question that he knows about it right so it's maybe he doesn't want to shit where he eats sure but it's just i don't know thinking about stuff like that we're kind of getting off topic but it's um even more amazing to me that they never looked at leland like they're they're looking at what i jacks they figure out who owns it eventually they never ask whether the father of the dead girl knew about it when he worked for the guy who owned it i don't know anyway um in conclusion audrey is my favorite character of season one it makes sense yeah and you too you think audrey cooper Kind of. I, I do love Cooper. Well, I basically like everybody. Cooper is an iconic character. Mm-hmm. What's kind of interesting is, is is looking back and realizing that in a way the iconic Cooper is a bit of a, a composite out of different versions of Cooper. Yeah, I think that is interesting. And that I think that we like the real iconic Cooper only exists in a couple of episodes in mm-hmm. the first season. Because yeah. in the pilot, he's a little more clinical and cold and alien. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that this time too. And then in the in later episodes, I think he is recognizable, but it is surprising how subordinate he becomes mm-hmm. to the bookhouse boys. Yes. Be, and um we've talked about this in political terms, but I wanted to to you know, I, I think that I'm not just kind of making it up because I mm-hmm. I see the bookhouse boys as being maybe uh, a sort yeah. of conservative force. Yeah. Really, Cooper as a character becomes so subordinated to them that the what everything Cooper does in like the finale, mm-hmm. he's just doing regular law enforcement stuff. Yeah. They're going undercover. Mm-hmm. They're do you know they're doing yeah. a sting. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Cooper in the earlier episodes, he relied much more on intuition. Yes. And he just knew like what people's relationships were with each other Mm -hmm. without having to like pretend to be someone and ask that, you know, and pump them for information. Yeah. And then also he used these intuitive methods as well. Right. You know, he, there, there's no, I I think there's a little bit of that in, in the back half of the season where Cooper is ahead of everyone else, where he knows like the blood type Mm -hmm. um, on the shirt. Yeah. But that's him being more like a Sherlock Holmes, right? As opposed to the intuitive Cooper, mm-hmm. and we don't see him like using these random methods. It was like, and of course, you could justify it and say, well, he he just did that to pick up some leads, and now this is where the leads are paying off. Mm-hmm. But we're not seeing that that uh, we're not seeing much of the quirky Cooper. No, in the last couple of episodes. No, we're not. And the coffee loving Cooper that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. And the, He's not um, using these Taoist uh, uh, methods or dreams anymore. Well, he he does spend like the bulk of the finale and the previous episode undercover, so he's not really being himself. Um, but yes, I agree with you. It's um, 
Yeah, it's almost like they didn't really know what to do with him sometimes. Um, which isn't a knock. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it, it's just maybe the necessity of having to like set a plot in motion. Oh, yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair. So I think, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I could have written it better. Mm-hmm. But I think it is interesting that the when they wrote themselves into a corner by having to have a long storyline where Cooper is undercover and doing some very like pretty basic kind of I don't know kind of boring mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't say it's boring but you know he goes undercover yeah and it's interesting because we're finding out more about one night Jackson Jacques and his relationship with Laura and that's very effective when we see Cooper's hidden moral indignation yeah I think uh, Kyle McLaughlin's performance there is quite good yeah but I guess I'm just saying that we're not s- Somehow it's like we're not seeing as much of that iconic Cooper uh-huh. that people remember in those episodes. And that that is uh, kind of mirrors the fact that Cooper as a character mm-hmm. has been initiated into the Bookhouse Boys yeah. and is doing joint operations with them. Mm-hmm. He, is, he would be chasing after Jack anyway because of how it unfolded yeah. um, that did start with his Tibetan method, mm-hmm. but he's also kind of falling into their narrative, which is that the, the darkness comes from outside. It's because of these outside forces that bring drugs and sex into our perfect little community. Yes, exactly. Here's my favorite part of the episode where we get to be mean. So who's your least favorite character? And feel free to answer that any way you want. There might be multiple answers, depending. Right. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about characters that where the character is unlikable. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think the answers are obvious, though. That's going to be Leo and Hank. Yeah, the scumbags. The, the scumbags. Um, but really, the character that I, I'm kind of least interested in, that doesn't resonate with me, Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings the show down. Mm-hmm. Is Nadine? Mm-hmm. And I hate to say that because I think that uh, there's something interesting there that Lynch was trying to do when he introduced his character. Yeah. So I have to say, unfortunately, a big part of it is Wendy Roby's performance. That's interesting. I feel like she doesn't play it real enough to give me the humanity of this character. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I think all of the genuine pathos from those scenes comes from Everett McGill. Yes. I think his performance is very good. I think his conflicted feelings about being in that marriage are very clear and um, heartbreaking, but Nadine is is a drag. Yes, and you know she's supposed to be a drag mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Right, she's supposed to be annoying. She's supposed to be somebody that Ed does not enjoy being married to. Right, but it he, there needs to be a clear sense of her as like a real person mm-hmm. who is also a very strange person. Yeah, and you need to have both of those. Right, and the show does that better elsewhere like um margaret lannerman the log lady yes. is a strange person who also seems like 
a real person. And we see, we see her a lot less and we see her in different situations that aren't quite so full of drama, but she does seem like a full and complete human being, I think. Um, right. Whereas Nadine, it's like, what does she do all day when she's right. not making drape runners and well, I mean, crying? That's what she's doing, that's what she's doing all day, Which right? Is sad. Right, but like, I feel like we know her so little. Like, what does Nadine think of James, right? Who lives with them? You know, like, is there a relationship there at all? There's got to be, but we don't know what it is, and we can't really guess. Right. I mean, I get, we get it first. She's pretty much in her own world. Mm -hmm. And that is maybe part of why she tries to kill herself mm -hmm. because she's so isolated and lonely. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Like you said, it's not, it's not set up as much as it needs to be. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I just think her performance is a little broad. Yeah. Um, it needs to be, if, if it's going to be about mental illness, mm -hmm. I think it should make me more uncomfortable somehow. Like, yeah. That if it's about her, like, being somehow a person that can't be easily integrated into other people's mm -hmm. lives and, and structures, like, that's that can be a compelling story. Yeah, I feel like what you're almost saying, and this is kind of how I feel about it, is that the problems with Nadine and her storylines is that in some ways they didn't go weird enough. Like, yes. they didn't make it ugly and uncomfortable enough. Well, like they, they yes. kind of pull their punches with Nadine. And, and in fact, I have the, the, I have something in mind when I say that. I yeah. have the what I think is the better version of this, mm -hmm. which is, from Wild at Heart, mm. the Crispin Glover sequence. Yeah, yeah. Where he's playing someone who is severely mm -hmm. mentally ill. Yes. And it's deeply uncomfortable, mm -hmm. hard to watch, but it's because they do go that extra distance. Yeah. Or they make it real. They make it, they show you at, like why this person, um, you know, was, not, yeah, a person that other people would have trouble integrating into their lives. Mm -hmm. And that makes them a figure that you as a viewer want to have, you have compassion for them. Yeah. But then they're also so abrasive mm -hmm. that you're pulled in both directions. And you see, you're also seeing them from the perspective of people that are like, well, this is exhausting or I just don't and want to I be around this person. You don't even need to go to wild at heart. You can just go to Leland and Sarah. Yeah. In this that's a good, season. That's a good yeah. I think that's exactly what I wish Nadine would be. Just, just people who are so, who are made really ugly by what they're going through and right. they're turned into people that nobody wants to deal with and yeah. are embarrassing and ruin things and act weird all the time. Yeah. Good call. That's, that's right. And but there's just so much humanity in both of them. Yeah. You can't help but have compassion for them even once you know what they did or what they ignored, which was a lot. Yeah. And um I just wish yeah that that they hadn't had Nadine be a cartoon really, that they made her just really really big. They yeah. just needed to go bigger and they went home.
Yeah, or or I also kind of think a better performance could have. Sure, and I and I don't really want to like blame all that on Wendy Roby because I've seen her be quite good in other things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it just doesn't quite gel. I think you're right. Yeah, and in a way, it kind of changes. Mm. And maybe it was they had difficulty knowing where to go with the character because sure. I think I kind of did like her in her earlier scenes. Mm. But they didn't really know what to do with her. Yeah. Right. And it's it. going to be a big problem mm -hmm. in the next season. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, what's your what's your least favorite character? Well, yeah, I um I do kind of want to spend a little time on the scumbags. Um, mm -hmm. Hank and Leo. Um, Let's have a toast. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, every one of them that I know. Any Anyway. I think Leo's scumminess especially um, felt very resonant to me this watch mm -hmm. um, because of something that I meant to talk about when we talked about favorite characters. I was really interested in Shelley's storyline yeah. um, this season and just how clear it was to me in a way that it wasn't when I watched this like when I was a teenager renting VHS cassettes. <laughs> Um, that this is a story about domestic violence and just how scared and vulnerable Shelley is. Yeah. Um, I think that's all really effective. And I, I applaud the show for not really making Leo all that complicated. He, do yeah. he doesn't have yeah. to be. There, there are complicated bad guys elsewhere in the show, but Leo is just a scumbag who, yeah. who hurts women who are close to him because he can and because he wants them to wait on him hand and foot and be available for sex and that's it yeah I and mean, he's not possessed by the devil no he's just a There's bad nothing, person yeah um, yeah it's it's the most mundane of the mundane evils and, and it happens all the time and, yes. and i think that's that's effectively done and i think hank is another yeah version of that and i appreciated that performance and um norma too it's just clear how terrified she is of him yeah um, it's very subtle because up until really the end of the season, he doesn't do anything that, that, that's that scary. Yeah. Except we know he's been in prison, but you buy it. You buy that she would be that scared of him. Yeah. You know that he's done something to make her that scared of him. I think right. it's well done. Well, and that he's connected to things that are bigger and right. So he could maybe reach her outside of prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but apart from them, um, Piper Laurie, man, I. There are times when I'm amused by Catherine, mm -hmm. you know, because the performance is just so broad, right? That it can be funny. Like sometimes when uh, she and Jack Nance are like bickering about something, it's it's kind of funny to watch. I think Jack Nance is fun to watch, but. I just, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I don't know. <laughs> she's just so much and yeah. she's so, she's so soap opera. It's interesting to compare her mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, well, I compare the character with Ben Horn because they're similar, mm -hmm. but then the performances are very different. And yeah. uh, uh, what's his name? Who plays Ben Horn? Richard Weimer? Yes. 
I think that's that's the example of what it should have been. Yeah, how Catherine should have been. Mm-hmm. Because he's just he's still he's a he's a villain, mm-hmm. and he's also um, kind of soap opera. Yeah, he's a little parts. cartoony. But you, there is enough there mm-hmm. that's real. Yeah, and that will also be a great foundation later on for that character and the return to have more depth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I agree. And I think I want to take back what I said in our first episode. I, um, I think Joan Chen is pretty good. Like, I think she does what the character is required right. to do. I think whatever problems there are with that character are writing problems. Yeah, I have mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. But I I do generally agree that it's a better performance than I gave her credit for. Yeah. And that, especially considering it's a character that has to, that has to always be performing Mm. and hiding her feelings. Yeah. And that what she's acting is the blankness of someone intentionally being a blank for other people. Mm, Absolutely. I do think that there's maybe not a lot of range there, mm. but it's definitely compared to some of the other actors. She's yeah, I, I like the performance, mm-hmm. and I think that it's not, it's not a. a I, I remain engaged with that character over yeah. the course of the season. I yeah. was interested in her story, mm-hmm. and I think that's a testament to the actor. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, Got to mention our boy James. I didn't mind James so much in this epi- uh, this season because mm-hmm. there's less of him. I don't than see there will as be. much. Yeah. I remembered him being a bigger part of this season mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, but a lot of the more annoying James ep- uh, episodes come later. Yes, and even right. even before the the really the bad episodes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not at, we haven't had his song. Yeah. God. <laughs> he, the actor is just so bad. Yeah. He's, yeah, it's really a shame. Mm-hmm. But there's, uh, I don't know if it's an interesting, oh, got that fly? Yeah, I got the fly. <laughs> uh, there's just not that much to say, mm-hmm. but also even as a character, he's not that, interesting really yeah i'm not sure they knew what to do with him right and i feel that way about donna um it seems like as the season and as the show goes on donna becomes more and more ancillary just because it doesn't seem like they knew what else to do with her Mm -hmm. um especially once the mystery was solved um but even before that like what she and james are doing trying to figure things out just seems very Ancillary, just like something that's happening, not on another show, but like they're in their own world and it doesn't really have an impact on the main plot. Um, And it just becomes less and less important. Right. And somehow the the tension of what they're doing isn't coming through. And Mm -hmm. that tension is that uh, their their friend just died. Mm -hmm. And suppose... and, And... I don't know. It 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 strikes me as very odd. Yeah. 
that they're finding this romance mm -hmm. between you so quickly. Yeah, and they don't really seem to have any guilt about it. Right. Uh, there was maybe some expression of guilt. Sure, but not as much as I would feel. <laughs> um, but I'm Catholic. I know that not everybody is, so they don't have guilt superpowers. Right. And I I feel like if this show had played up at tension, mm -hmm. their scenes would be a little more interesting. Right, right. And, and I think... Um, it would have made the scenes with them and Maddie that have already happened and are still to come more interesting because mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't have just been a love triangle. It would have been a love quadrangle. There's, there's Maddie, but there's also the memory of Lara and mm -hmm. Maddie isn't just competing with Donna. She's competing with that memory and, and that should yeah. have been brought forward a little more. I mean, yeah, I, I, there's kind of the vertigo mm -hmm. element that we get to in season two. Sure. Actually, we get that here. Yeah, we get a little, a little bit, bit with Maddie trying to having to stand in for Laura. Mm -hmm. We talked about that. Yeah, in previous episodes, and I think that that's well done. But right, yeah, it's somehow. I think there's a tension that they need to move. They needed Laura to die, mm -hmm. and her death allows them to move on. Yeah. And yet they also want to, like, what is their motivation really in figuring out why Laura died? Well, it, I guess yeah. they cared about her, but right. they don't actually act like it that much somehow. I don't know. No, no. I mean, like Donna says to James, nobody loved her but us. But right. yeah, they, they don't act grief stricken. And it's only been a few days. But yeah. Yeah. The first season happens over a very brief period of time. Yeah, we were tracking that pretty closely early on, and I kind of lost track, but mm -hmm. I, it, it must be... At most, it's a couple weeks. Yeah, I don't even think it's that. I think no. it's like one week. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, but... Yeah, I won't, I won't call James and Donna least favorite at this point, but in season two, they're going to get there, mm -hmm. I think. Um, Pretty sure of it. But moving on, this is a question that maybe we won't be able to answer, but if we were watching it blind, mm -hmm. do you think at this point you'd have an idea of who the killer was? Yeah. Yeah? I think that I would be suspecting Leland. Yeah. And I know that, that it's easy to say that. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, you can't know. Yeah. But I've seen a lot of, uh, you know, detective stories and mm -hmm. mysteries. I've seen enough to know that, that a lot of what the show is leading me to believe is going to wind up being a red herring. Mm-hmm. And what do we know at this point? We know that there was... A third man. Yes. And it wasn't Orson Welles. It wasn't Orson Welles, although that would have been great. Right. Um, was he dead at that point? I'm just thinking of an alternate universe where Orson Welles <laughs> I was think in he was dead. Yeah. I forget when he died. I think it was the 80s, but I'm not sure. Yes. Man, that would have been sick. <laughs> anyway, yes, there was a third man who had sex with Laura the night of her death. Right, so we, that, that's like a huge yeah. clue. We now know two of them, Leo and Jacques. So 
I think that if you're a savvy uh, TV watcher, mm-hmm. movie watcher, at this point, you know that it's not Leo or Jacques. Right. Because there's someone else. Why would they drop that? Mm-hmm. And then also, we, we because true crime is such a thing now, mm-hmm. much more than it was then. Yeah. It's almost a cliche that the, when a woman dies, you look at the boyfriend. Yeah, her husband, her husband, ex-boyfriend, her dad. And yeah, if it's a, a child or teenager. Mm-hmm. And at this point, James and Bobby, I think, are pretty thoroughly they're, ruled out. They're ruled out, yeah. But Leland is there being very strange mm-hmm. and just killed a guy. Yeah. Maybe because he is getting revenge mm-hmm. or maybe he's trying to tie up loose ends. Yeah. Although, you know, I have to wonder because apparently at the time people did not suspect Leland. Do you think they're laying it on a little thick with like Jacoby being a potential suspect at this point? That's an interesting question. It's possible that maybe I would be, I would be suspecting Jacoby. Mm -hmm. Because he's so creepy. Yeah. And he was clearly obsessed with her and like kept things of hers and um, kept things about her secret and seemed sort of proprietary. Um, yeah, but who her secrets? But who knocked him out? You know, right? Exactly. Then, I, then you start to think there's someone else doing things, mm-hmm. and there was a third man, and yeah. the same person, and it's got to be someone. And we had just seen Leland. He saw Maddie leave the house. Yeah earlier that night. And there's also the question of Bob, which they introduced. Um, They introduced Bob and Mike, but they kind of brushed them aside in the last couple episodes. Yeah, that's true. Because now I know that Bob is... Leland. And kind of a malevolent like spirit. Mm -hmm. But at this point, they didn't know that so yeah that's true what i might be thinking if i'm watching this for the first time without knowing how it ends is what about this bob guy yeah you know he's out there somewhere mm-hmm. sarah, sarah had a vision of him right um he's a third man mm-hmm. so yeah maybe maybe that's where I'm, maybe i wouldn't be suspecting Leland as much because i you know the bob is out I know there that bob is out there right it's interesting that they don't really return to those elements at all in, in the, the finale. finale. No, they don't. It, that is interesting. And maybe that's kind of part of what's missing to me. Um, there's no supernatural stuff at all in the finale, really. Yeah. It's missed. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Even like just I, a, a little touch. Right. And, and I think, you know, I personally, and this might change as we rewatch season two and Firewalk with me, but I felt pretty relatively firmly, let's say, on the Bob as a metaphor mm-hmm. side. Um, and the supernatural, you know, spooky, scary mythos stuff about Twin Peaks. Like, I like all that stuff, but it's um, it's not the most important element to me, but it is important. And it is, you know, not mm-hmm. something you should just ignore i guess 
Yeah, well, at its best, those elements are the expressionistic mm-hmm. component of exactly. art. Exactly. Which gives you the great, the somehow allows you to access the the deeper truth, the mm-hmm. emotional truth. Yeah. That that makes you feel connected in a way that you wouldn't when you have the distance uh-huh. of knowing these are just characters on a TV show. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It's the, uh, you know, it's uh, why is why is the Pope screaming in that Francis Bacon painting? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the scream doesn't mean anything except that it allows the painting to have an effect on you mm-hmm. and to lock in somehow in your, with your psyche in a way. Yeah. And that's how I see the supernatural elements at their best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, but that leads us to the next question, which I wrote down, what is the overall story of this season? By which I mean, if you had to say just based on this season, what this show is about. What would you say? So I kind of touched on this earlier. Mm -hmm. I think it's sort of a, an uncovering of original sin. Mm -hmm. That where you came from, which is also who you are, Mm -hmm. has this fatal flaw. Mm -hmm that that leaves within you a kind of horror yeah about what yourself and your future mm-hmm. and for some characters it is actually their destruction yeah that their origin is their destruction mm-hmm. it's what it means for to be murdered by your parent yeah and raped by your parent right yeah, and that, that's connected somehow with the story of the town. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about this economic process of plunder and domination and how that means the town is built on this shaky ground. Yes. Because it always has to be changing. The mill has to burn down. Because mm-hmm. that's the cycle of, of boom and bust mm-hmm. that we create out of our desires. Yeah. And that was, you know, the Twin Peaks was a town built by settlers on stolen land. Mm -hmm. And they projected their desire of this Canaan's land or El Dorado in the West. Yes. Where if only they took this land Mm -hmm. for themselves, Mm -hmm. they could build on it something better. Yeah. You know, the, the, the shape of what they're lacking. Mm -hmm. And that's what Twin Peaks is. It's this collective dream, Mm -hmm. this idea of, of a pastoral Mm -hmm. on top of this churning of flesh meeting flesh and violence and lust Mm -hmm. and also bodies shaping the earth Mm -hmm. and nature um it seems solid but it's like always its essence is that it's changing Mm -hmm. 
and uh, yeah, it's it's it, and I think that that's that that is also the the epitome of that is the Palmer House. Mm -hmm. This is middle class home where everyone where you're safe. Yeah. And it's the home of Laura Palmer, the perfect teenager. Mm -hmm. And she gets to represent the town. Yes. She's beautiful. She's smart. She um, helps those in need. She does everything for everybody. Right. But unfortunately, representing the town means that you are the side of its displaced desires mm -hmm. and its whole history. Yes. It's nightmare of history. And I think that's part of the horror of just seeing the Palmer House interior. It's like so mundane yet so filled with dread. Yes. And the fan mm -hmm. and all their bric-a-brac. It's, those displaced desires are there, but they're also like invading her body mm -hmm. and her soul. Yeah. It's this, this form of control that's trying to like take her. Mm-hmm and integrate her completely, but she can't be integrated. Yeah. So she's discarded. And that's what what allows Twin Peaks to function, mm -hmm. to be Twin Peaks. Yeah. Is that human beings are turned into objects of consumption. Objects of consumption are turned to garbage and garbage is dumped in a river. Yeah, wrapped in plastic. So Laura is like the buried mm -hmm. humanity yeah. of the town mm -hmm. that couldn't be digested or incorporated and uh, so the whole story is like the town has to confront that, like Oedipus, yeah, confronting the reason for the curse. Mm -hmm. it, the reason you're king is the reason why your people are cursed. Yes. And that's so why Twin Peaks has this great coffee and pie, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. And it really is, I'm sure. I'm sure it's great. Best. Yeah. And I don't even think you have to say. Um, I think in a certain sense, there's like the seeds of something that could be beautiful coming out of this. Yes. But it is still what allows it to run is, is uh, this disposal mm -hmm. of Laura. Yeah. And this denial that the town is constantly part of. And so for Lynch, the dream is important as an idea because reality itself. Yes everything that seems firm to us and mm -hmm. on which we base our sense of self and truth mm -hmm. is always shifting. Yeah. And so what's really real are these demons and angels and mm -hmm. spirits and liminal spaces mm -hmm. because they're the things that we had to deny mm -hmm. to create these structures like the Palmer house. Yeah, I see that. My answer to this question is, I guess, a little simpler. Thank you, Brian. That was very well said. <laughs> um, so in a way, I'm almost embarrassed by it, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I think, at least so far, this show is about violence against women and not just Laura. And it's not just showing that violence against women and saying, oh, gosh, isn't this bad? I think, and this is related to what you were saying, it's showing how that violence is almost literally what makes society run mm -hmm. in a very material way. Um, 
Laura's exploitation is also what led to her charity work. You know, I think she felt guilty for things and mm. felt like she owed people. So she helped them. Um, Shelly's abuse is what allows Leo to go out on the yeah. road. Right. And not just, you know, make money as a trucker, but also to sell drugs and right. to live his life. Um, ben Horn is making money off of the exploitation of mm -hmm. girls at One Eye Jacks. I think you can argue about whether Sarah is abused or not. I think by Firewalk With Me, we can see that she is. Um, Josie's exploitation is what leads to the mill burning down. Right. Um, her, what we will find out is basically a lifetime of exploitation. Um, Norma's terror at Hank is what gets him parole mm -hmm. because she is afraid to say how afraid she is of him. Yeah. So he gets out of prison and he won't leave her alone. Um, I think you see this all over the show. It's not just showing how terrible the violence that all of these women face is. It's showing how it's useful to people. Yeah, exactly. And that that falls especially on women. Yes. And girls. Yeah, that they're designated... Mm -hmm. somehow by culture, by their communities. Yeah. Um, to, to, to do this work mm -hmm. while at the same time, yeah, that, that somehow they get to both um, be uh, the, uh, the, the surface level mm -hmm. of beauty Yes. Of something uncomplicated, something mm -hmm. that others enjoy looking at. Yeah. Pleasure is projected onto them. Mm -hmm. So that, but then also the other side of it mm -hmm. that, you know, the ugly side of it. So that Twin Peaks is like a beautiful place. Yes. Nat like it's naturally beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. scenery. Mm -hmm. And the, but it also exists by exploiting that beauty. Mm -hmm. And, turning the trees into lumber yeah and it's full of beautiful women mm -hmm. who get to represent a town that's a beautiful place and make amazing pie make amazing pie and to be seductive or um to be servants to be friendly yeah you know norm is so friendly mm -hmm. in a way that the uh, woman in the diner the next town over isn't yeah they're catering to the needs of people mm -hmm. and they're also being exploited yes and i mean i it just occurred to me but i think you can even look at like nadine this way and and her what is she inventing she's inventing something that already exists but it's not silent and she wants to make the silent version i think that's really thematically resonant she nadine is trying to make her place in the home quieter mm -hmm. and to make it take up less space, to be less intrusive, to be less like that. That's her entire goal. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's so sad. And, and Nadine isn't really, 
a victim of violence in the same way. Although we find out that, you know, Ed shot her (laughs) accidentally, but um, the result of that is always walking around her eye patch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so no wonder he feels so guilty and won't leave her now. Right. Well, and we also see that she is a woman who doesn't know what she wants. Yeah. In season two, and here I'm trying to actually take a pretty bad storyline mm-hmm. and and see what it could have been. Yeah. And, and be more charitable. Mm-hmm. She regresses. Yes. Because she was, you know, they got married young. Mm-hmm. It was like a sort of fantasy mm-hmm. for her as like a schoolgirl yeah. fantasy. Yeah. Because cause Ed was like the jock mm-hmm. and she thought she was beneath him. Yeah. And they would have this wonderful life together. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't actually want to, to just sit around the house all day. No. And we find that on the return, which mm-hmm. I think does try to make good on... Nadine as a character, yeah, even though it does that by removing her as the narrative obstacle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we find out that she's able to to not to be a better person mm-hmm. by being more empowered. Yes, and realizing that she's actually more stable when she is on her own. Yeah, not sitting in a house all day thinking mm-hmm. about the the drape runners and how they're too loud. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. She's able to struggle herself out of the shit. Yes. Yes. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's what all of these stories are ultimately about. They're, they're about how violence against women is beneficial to people. Yeah, and that women wind up being, like, the the... Like the receptacles of violence. Yeah, but even like the hole, mm-hmm. the hole in the community, mm-hmm. like Laura literally is a hole in that she's a space. She was there, now she's not. Yes. She's a space. Mm-hmm. And she had to become that to not be completely incorporated into the evil. Yeah. It is sort of, you know, my, you might say Christ like sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that like hole at the center of the hub of the wheel yeah. that allows the wheel to keep going, mm-hmm. but it's also a fissure because once you think about that too hard yeah. and you think this only works because Laura died. Yeah. It makes you wonder, do I want this wheel to keep turning? Yeah. It threatens your dream, mm-hmm. which is that Twin Peaks is a wonderful place. Exactly. Uh, or that Twin Peaks is a place. Mm-hmm. That's, it's not even whether it's good or bad. Twin Peaks is just an idea. Yes, it's it's just a name given to a particular location and group of people that could have been split up or could have been named something else or whatever. Well, right, and that they are like actively shaping yes. their environment while also lying about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So Twin Peaks is like a lie on top of a lie. Mm-hmm or a contradiction on top of a contradiction. Right, because yes, a society isn't a stable thing. It's something that is continually being made and unmade and right. remade and, and shaped by material uh, conditions and ideology. And 
violence against women is another yes. one of those processes that shapes that society and is necessary to its shaping. Yeah, but when we say America, we're not talking about that. No. When we say Twin Peaks, we're not talking about right. that. Right, right. We're talking about, you know, this this feeling you have when you're just, it's quiet, it's a quiet place, you're, you're in a diner and everyone's mm -hmm. so friendly. Yeah, and the pie's amazing and the... And everyone's so close to each other. The waitress looks like a movie star and yeah. Everyone knows everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows your name. And you just feel like- And you're always glad you came. <laughs> you just feel like you're at home. Mm -hmm. That's Twin Peaks. Right. Where does that place exist? It's in your mind. It's in your mind. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I uh, was um, talking to a friend a long time podcast fan, mm -hmm. Peter Axer. Hi, Peter. He thought that we had maybe uh, shifted a little bit in our view of Twin Peaks as a town, mm -hmm. that earlier we were talking about it in terms of duality or that, yeah. that it's both good and bad mm -hmm. kind of mixed together. Mm -hmm. And that maybe uh, we've kind of come down more on the side of Bobby. Yeah. That it's a bad place yeah. where everyone is is implicated in some way in Laura's death. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think about that? I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, it's it's very hard for me to look at a place like Twin Peaks, where, as I said, so many people are just grist for the mill mm -hmm. of, you know, not not the lumber mill, but, like, <laughs> but the mill of history and right. the, the mill of um, society. Uh, shaping itself and think it's that it's worth it. Like right. no pie can be good enough to make what Lara and Shelly and Josie and those girls at One Eye Jacks, they're suffering worth it. It's, it just can't be good enough pie. Yes, I think, yeah, that's probably where I come down on, but I think you don't even, even be, you know, even if you say, you don't necessarily just as like a fan of art have to say, well, there must be a better way. <laughs> no, know? no, you don't. But at the very least you have to then recognize that, that what you love about a place like Twin Peaks mm -hmm. is in a state of tension and contradiction. Yeah, I think and that's that fair. that you can't, Dale cannot just come home to Twin Peaks and be home mm -hmm. and retire. Yeah. That in a way that was never an option mm -hmm. because once you know what Twin Peaks is, yeah. you could still like the pie. Yeah. And you can still think that there are some good people there. Mm -hmm. um, but you also know that it's already ending. Yes. And the return is oh, very much about that. Yeah, I agree. It's already changing and ending mm -hmm. what you thought what it was before. It's already changing, and so everything that you love is is tra is kind of tragically in this state of change. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to talk about the return, but where mm -hmm. Dale Cooper ends is, I think, where you end if you can't fix Twin Peaks. Yeah. So you can never, even if you say, well, this is just life, mm -hmm. there's no better way to do things or to be. 
This no. is just life. Yes. You can't go home again. You can't go back to where you thought, well, this is just life and life is good. And you can't make the terrible things that happen unhappen. Right. Uh, so that's a little, um, little preview. Yes, for when we talk about the return, which we will be talking about. But first, we are going to get started on season two. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. Lots of good stuff. Lots of weird stuff. A lot of weird stuff in season two. Josie goes into a dresser doorknob and never comes out. So look forward to that. We won't be getting to that one for a while, but we are going to take a four week break mm -hmm. between now and releasing our first episode on season two, uh, just so we can get a little more recording done so we can take a little bit of a breather and we hope you'll be back next month, but you can catch us on email at is twin peaks about the bunny at gmail.com. And you can check out our Twitter not about bunny. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really excited to talk about season two. Yeah. And uh, the premiere, one of the most fascinating uh, two, is it two hours? I don't remember if it is. One of the most fascinating yeah. episodes of television. I agree. I think of all I, time. I agree. And when I have some mixed feelings about it, mm -hmm. we can talk about that because I think it's already the beginning of the end. Yeah. I mean, the second season is the place for mixed feelings for sure. But yeah. um, there are some things which I think get even better. I think like Ray Wise is the acting MVP of this season for me. And he just yeah is just as good, if not more. I think two. the high points of season two are easily, easily match the high points of season one. I agree. I agree. All right. Well, I think that does it for now. All right. Catch you later. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.